Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, I'm Rohit from Lifestyle Mastery and today I'm excited to have Diane Malkahi, who's the author of the best-selling The Gig Economy. Uh, Diane is also a frequent podcast guest, a radio commentator and sort of a speaker. She's also an adjunct professor who created and teaches an award-winning MBA course on the popular topic at Babson College. Diane is currently a senior fellow at the Ewing Marion Kaufman Foundation and adjunct lecturer at Babson College. Welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So, so how did you get your start into, into freelancing and what made you uh, get interested into, into gig economy? Yeah, so I actually, I have been working independently for about six years now. And I would say that I became interested in working independently almost as soon as I started working out of college. You know, I was never a person that loved going to an office every day and having one full-time job. I always envisioned a career where I would have a portfolio of gigs or projects that I worked on. It always seemed more interesting and more challenging to me. Um, So it took a while to get there, but I've been working independently now for uh, over a half decade and yeah, really enjoy having a variety of projects to work on for a, a bunch of different clients. Interesting. So, um, so when you started about, you know, freelancing and doing your own thing, what, uh, you know, what were your next steps? Because when somebody's in a corporate job, they, they have a lot of options uh, in front of them. But, you know, what made you look at, you know, consulting and freelancing so that you can, you know, uh, look at, uh, at gigs, which you can do on site? So is your question how to find gigs or is your question how to transition to Greg to gigs? Yeah. yeah. How did you transition from, from, from a full-time job to, to, you know, doing gigs? Yeah. The way that I transitioned was, um, you know, when I left full-time work, I started working for a former employer who became my anchor client. And I think that that's a really uh, helpful thing to have when you first go out on your own is somebody who um, it, you know, is interested in working with you for a reasonably long period of time because it gives you, a, it, it, it's helpful in the transition to have a sense of stability. Right. So when I first started, I had that anchor client and then I could work on taking on other projects with other clients, but I had that foundation that I could build from. Okay, so uh, so Diane, you had a couple of years of experience uh, before you transitioned into into freelancing uh, work. But um, you know, for for listeners who don't have a full time job, how to get a side gig? You know, they just passed out of college or you know, they they uh, had a break in the career. You know, what what is what is your advice on how to get a side gig? Yeah, my advice on how to get a side gig is to always have a side gig. So, you know, I teach at a university, I teach in an MBA program, but I tell my students, you should have a side gig while you're in school. It can be something that doesn't require a ton of time, 
but it's always, you know, every semester, it's always helpful to start building your portfolio, even while you're in school, by doing uh, projects or by working in the gig economy in a way that gives you, um, one, practice and experience working independently, and two, allows you to leave with a portfolio that you can talk about. For people that are in full-time jobs, um, I have the same advice, which is, you know, always have a side gig. My advice is a little bit looser in the sense that, you know, for somebody who's already in a full-time job and you already have a steady and stable source of income, I would say give yourself a little bit more freedom in terms of thinking about a side gig and consider looking at side gigs that at least initially don't generate income. And the reason I say that is um, by releasing that goal, it allows you a little bit more freedom to explore areas that are just interesting to you with no other agenda except to explore that area. So, uh, you know, it might, uh, a side gig that doesn't generate income might look like um, doing some pro bono work or working in a volunteer basis for a nonprofit or on a board of directors. And the reason that can be really valuable, especially for somebody who's been in a full-time job for a while, is that it provides a really low risk and low cost way to just experiment and see if it really is something that you're interested in. And it gives you a way to start expanding your network in an area where you might not know anybody, or you might not have any experience. Um, so if you're in a full-time job, you know, think really broadly about areas that you might be interested in working, and then think about, are there ways that you can enter that industry or sector um, by working uh, on a pro bono basis or volunteer basis? It just really opens up a lot more possibilities. Very interesting, you know, um, because, you know, when you think about gig economy, um, you know, you're looking at uh, Uber and, uh, you know, a lot of other uh, side gig uh, platforms, uh, even, even in India, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, people who are leaving the jobs and, you know, working in Uber, uh, but, but, I'm, but I'm sure, you know, since uh, they're, not, they're not making that kind of money anymore, maybe they're going back to their own jobs, but... Yeah, but do you, do you suggest people to, to look at gig platforms like like a dog walking platform or or, or an Uber uh, uh, to uh, to make money on the side? Yeah, that's definitely one option. Although the way that I talk about the gig economy is much broader than that. So, right. you know, the way that I define the gig economy is if you're not a full time employee in a full time job. So that could be somebody who is a consultant or an independent contractor or freelancer, uh, an on-demand worker, or somebody who has a full-time job but is also doing a side gig. So right. it's a very broad definition. So some people you know, pick up work through online platforms like what you were talking about. They might go to Uber or TaskRabbit or um, Fiverr or Upwork. Those are all great platforms for finding a variety of types of work, particularly Upwork. I think Upwork probably has the largest, um, most diverse set of options for finding independent work. But there are also platforms that are geared towards 
specific industries or sectors. For example, uh, Catalent is a platform that is designed to match uh, former management consultants with projects, with companies. Um, TopTal is a platform that is designed mainly to match people who are software engineers with projects. Or if you look at Spare Hire and Graphite, they really um, look for people who are in the financial services industry and match them for projects. So there's really a platform for almost every industry and sector. Um, and I, I think it's important to just understand that, they, that there's work, there's independent and gig work there, no matter what industry or sector you're in. It's really very broad. The opportunity set is very broad. Interesting. And, um, you know, what is your suggestion for people who would want to leave their jobs and they're, they're doing a side gig on the side and they've also started generating some, some money. Uh, should they, should they look at quitting their jobs only when, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're making uh, as much money as uh, they're making in the jobs or, or do you think, you know, even if they're making a little bit amount of money and they should uh, dive into it? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the answer is that depends. If you have a if you have a side gig, and it's something that you're interested in doing uh, on a more full time basis, and the side gig is making money, you know, that's a great early indication. Yeah. Uh, I think the question is, you know, how quickly have you been able to ramp your side gig? Um, that's that's information that's important. How how many customers do you think are out there? What are people willing to pay for your service or product? Is it, is it something that's in demand? How quickly do you think you'll, you'll be able to ramp um, your business? That, uh, those, those factors are important when you think about leaving a full-time job. Um, and, I, and I also think, you know, the, the, the advice I usually give to somebody who's already in a corporate job is to, to create an exit strategy. So to have a plan for leaving the job that is a little bit more comprehensive than just entirely dependent on how your side gig is doing. And what I mean by that, the, the exercise that I give to my clients that I coach and to my students is to imagine that you knew that you were going to get laid off in six months. You knew that for sure. Your boss came in and told you that. What, is, what are the things that you would wanna to do to prepare? and make a list of those things, the professional, the personal, the financial, and then start executing that. And what that does is it gives you a really concrete way to think about the steps that you need to take to prepare to leave your full-time job. And that can be, you know, if you are thinking of leaving and, and going to do your side gig on a full-time basis, it's really helpful to feel like you have a plan in place, it, it gives you a lot of, you know, sense of control, sense of power, and it also allows you to leave in a way that maximizes how prepared you are to depart from your corporate job um, and, and also gives you a runway to plan for that departure. So I think having an exit strategy and then also having a side gig that you're interested in ramping up and making sure that you understand, okay, what are the steps I need to take to get my side gig to a place where it's actually a sustainable business and I can make a living from it. So, so that's all part of the departure planning. 
Correct. Yeah, that seems like a very uh, that seems like a good plan. Having an exit strategy is, is important. But um, how does one create uh, security? Because you know uh, you would have bills, and uh, if you if you're married and have kids, you you have a lot more other responsibilities. So so how can an independent worker uh, secure you know a safety net of benefits and protections? Uh, because uh, what happens with businesses is you you never ever sure. Uh, you know about the kind of business or, or money which can trickle in. So, um, so do you have a process like you know somebody should have a year worth of uh, savings or investments uh, or something like that? For for or what is your strategy? What is your process for uh, uh, for you know for telling independent? Great workers? question. So uh, I mean, yeah, I mean that's a great question. So first of all, as part of the exit strategy. Um, of transitioning to independent work, definitely part of the preparation is having a cash cushion, do, you know, increasing your savings rate or increasing your revenues. You know, while you're working full time, any money that you make from your side gig, saving that as part of your plan to transition to the independent uh, workforce. You know, making sure that you have some kind of cash cushion as part of transitioning, because when you start a new business, it's never stable revenue right from the start. Also, as I said, having an anchor client that has committed to work with you for let's say six months or for a year can also add some stability to your business right from the start. So that's, that's number one is kind of the, the savings or getting an anchor client side. Secondly though, it's looking at your existing lifestyle and saying, is this really what, is this the lifestyle that I want to buy? I think so many of us end up um, kind of in a default lifestyle. You know, we graduate, we, you know, we buy a house or, or get an apartment and we, you know, get married and we have kids and we buy a car and we go on vacation and it just becomes like this, this sort of default lifestyle. And I know from interviews that I've done for my book and my students that when you ask people to actually reflect on what are their real values and priorities, what really matters to them, and does their lifestyle reflect that, that oftentimes it leads to um, changes in their lifestyle that are financially impactful. So for example, I've had clients and students who say, actually, I don't really care about having a big house. I would much rather um, live in a smaller space, but live in a city. Or I don't care about having a big car or an expensive car. Like I would be fine, you know, taking the commuter rail to work every day or biking to work. I don't really need to spend as much money as I do on, trans on transportation, for example. So it's really about reflecting on your lifestyle and looking for ways that you can have more financial flexibility in the expenses that you generate. Because a lower cost lifestyle means you need less revenues to pay for it, which means you have a lot more flexibility in the work that you do. So that's an important component is to take a look at your lifestyle and really figure out what matters to you, what's important, and spend money on those things and figure out what doesn't matter to you and spend a lot less money on, the, on, on those things. And then that opens up a lot of financial flexibility. And then I think the third thing is, as you suggested, like 
a safety net. You know, how do you get benefits independently? Right. And that really varies. You know, I know your listeners are global. That really var- varies on where you live. Um, in the U.S., what that means is getting a set of benefits on your own. Like the individual really has a lot of responsibility for going out and finding health insurance and finding life insurance and buying those things and saving for retirement. In Europe, it's a little bit easier because benefits aren't so strictly tied to an employer. They're more broad-based and you have access to those benefits even if you're not working for a traditional employer. So I think depending on where you live, understanding and figuring out, you know, how do I get benefits? How do I get access to health insurance? How do I save for retirement? How do I get life and disability insurance? Those are all important considerations. Got yeah, totally, totally makes sense. Uh, you know, Diana, I wanted to know if, if somebody, uh, uh, you know, is working a corporate job and they don't, they don't have time to network. Now, how, how do they cultivate connections without, you know, uh, without networking? Is, is, is it possible to, to build relationships and connections? Absolutely. Um, you know, I think most people sort of hate traditional networking. <laughs> this idea that you go to this large event with, you know, you don't know anybody, you don't know who you should be talking to, you know, it's loud, you're drinking bad wine. Um, everybody sort of hates those. Luckily, there are alternatives to physically showing up at events like that and having to kind of muscle your way through them. Two, um, two ways of connecting, actually three ways that I would recommend that are much easier to do when you have a full-time job are what I call inbound connecting, which is generating content and ideas and perspectives that bring like-minded people to you. And these are things that are often fairly straightforward to do even when you're in a full-time job. So one of those is speaking. And that could be attending, you know, industry conferences or events, but instead of relying on, you know, those networking breaks and those coffee breaks to kind of run into the right people, it's about proactively taking a speaking role, whether it's on a panel or giving a talk or doing a fireside chat or an interview and being in a position where you are putting your ideas out and you are talking about your expertise and experience And then people are much more likely, the right people are much more likely to come to you based on the content that you've been putting out during the day. For a lot of people, speaking is not their strength or it's intimidating or they're more introverted. And that's totally okay. There are ways to put your content out in the world without having to get up on a stage. And for people who prefer it, I would suggest thinking about writing. And that can be anything from writing articles for your industry publications or even for your company newsletter. Or it can be publishing a blog, publishing articles on Medium or on LinkedIn, or becoming active on Twitter and getting to know people that way, you know, becoming uh, active on social media. So those are all ways to figure out who the influencers are in your industry or to connect with people that you know are important in your industry, to start having a conversation with them, to start getting your ideas out into the world and becoming known by people, 
all without leaving without leaving your kind of normal uh, conference circuits or your desk. So those are two ways where you can uh, create content in a way that that brings people to you and allows you to network that way. And I think the third way that's really powerful is what I call curation. So that can be um, as simple as figuring out, you know, who are the people I really need to get to know within my company so that when I leave, these are people that are part of my network and that know me and know the work that I do. And that can look like uh, making sure that you have coffees or lunches with people across your company while you're there. It can mean reaching out to people on a one-on-one -on -one basis at, net, at conferences or other industry events and saying, hey, I see you're going to be at this event. Can we sit down for 20 minutes and have a coffee and talk one-on-one? -on -one? And for many people, that's a, you know, that targeted curation of people that you have specifically identified as, as interesting to you or as important in your industry and making sure that you get to know them, that they know who you are and the work that you do, that sort of targeted curation can feel a lot less overwhelming than going to a conference and hoping that you meet the right people. So doing that legwork in advance and being proactive is, is another way to, to network by really connecting with people. No, absolutely. These are these are great suggestions on how to build connections through content and through curation. Uh, you know, do you have any suggestions on how to build flexibility into your into your financial life uh, for 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 yourself and for your family? Yeah, I mean, besides you know reflecting on your priorities and values and making sure that you have created a lifestyle that reflects those uh, versus just kind of defaulting into trying to keep up with everybody around you. I think the, you know, another way to introduce financial flexibility is to consider where you can access your lifestyle instead of owning it. And what I mean by that, I'll take transportation as an example. What I mean by that is, you know, now it's so much easier things when you need them and for how long you need them. So the, it's much easier to access things when you need them and for how long you need them rather than own them. So the example I like to give is, you know, I haven't owned a car in a decade. And what that means is I never had to come up with um, a down payment to buy a car. And I don't have the monthly fixed costs of having a car. I don't have a car payment. I don't have insurance or maintenance or the cost of garaging a car. Instead, I just access my transportation when I need it and for how long. So I, you know, rent zip cars, I take Uber and Lyft, I use the subway, I, there's, a, there's a bike rental in my city that I can access, and I walk. So all of those things introduce financial flexibility into my lifestyle because I don't have a fixed cost of a monthly debt payment, right. and I didn't have to come up with a bunch of money in order to purchase something. So again, it varies country by country, but I think accessing transportation, accessing accommodation, you can even access you know, your wardrobe, you can access consumer goods. There's so many ways to think about um, renting things that you need to live this lifestyle that you want. And that really changes your balance sheet. It means that you have to assume much less debt 
and it also means you have to save much less money that goes towards purchasing things. You can use those savings for other things, for investing or for keeping cash reserves. Yeah, these are definitely interesting ideas on you know how to build flexibility. Uh, uh, so, so, Dan, you've been you've been independent worker for say uh, you know last uh, five years. So, what made you write the book, The Daily Economy? I mean, I think what made me write the book was really teaching the class and uh, working with individuals to help them transition. What okay. I realized was. You know, I mean, I've been teaching the class for six years. I've been working with individuals and I realized there were a lot of exercises and assignments that were really powerful and that worked. And I had developed this base of knowledge and understood like, what were the issues that mattered to people? What were the issues that resonated? Um, it was through that interaction with my students and with coaching clients that gave me the ability to kind of pull it all together in very practical and it can really blueprint uh, to help people transition into independent work. Got it. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, you decided to go uh, through publish, publisher HarperCollins. Uh, so, you know, how did, how did you get in touch with uh, HarperCollins and, uh, you know, uh, did you not think about self-publishing the book? I did think about that. The way that I approached uh, the book process was to interview a number of authors, um, okay. people that I knew that were speakers, that were authors, that were professors. And I talked with them about their book publishing experience and what they would recommend. And the, you know, what I heard was uh, the advice that I received was for the first book, go through the traditional publishing process. It will give you credibility um, and expert help. And then after that, you know, it's much easier to self-publish in a credible way. Um, so I had already obtained an agent and decided to put the book out for sale. And then the way that I decided among publishers was the same way. I had talked to authors and said, you know, who is your publisher? Tell me about your experience. What was good? What was bad? You know, would you recommend uh, another author go with them? Yeah. Uh, what do you wish you had done differently? Those sorts of questions. And that was incredibly helpful for me in my process was talking to people who had been there, done that. And so um, that was how I decided to go the traditional publishing route. And that was how I decided to pick my publisher. Got it. Uh, so let's quickly do the top three questions. Uh, what's, what's your favorite uh, business book? I would call this a traditional business book, but books that I've read recently is a book called Essentialism. And I think it really goes to some of the things that we were talking about around financial flexibility. It's really all about figuring out, like, what are the essential things that matter to you in your life? And then how do you build a life and allocate your time? You know, what do you say yes to? What do you say no to? Um, around things that really matter to you. And I just found that, you know, we all have many competing uses of our time. Uh, the world is a very dynamic place. There's lots of places we can turn our attention and energy. And I just found that book to be really grounding and to really provide a framework for figuring out how do you build a life around what matters to you. 
Correct. And you know, if you could go back in time when you started, uh, you, you know, your freelancing work, what is the one thing you would have focused on? I would have focused on uh, outsourcing more things earlier. So I think ideally, I would have already had kind of a team of independent workers in place when I made the leap, you know, somebody who was already doing the things that I don't like to do and are less good at doing like my social media and making sure my back office is running smoothly and making sure I had a marketing strategy in place. I would have um, done the legwork to find those people and get them in place earlier than I did. Okay, and, uh, and what's your favorite online tool, for example, Gmail or Slack? My favorite online tool is Calendly, which allows me to simply send a link when somebody wants a meeting or phone call with me. I just say, here, here's my calendar, and I've blocked off times that I'm willing to take uh, meetings and phone calls, and they can just go online and schedule it. It has saved me a lot of back and forth for scheduling. Yeah, that's and that's also one of my favorite tools. Uh, yeah, you know, what is the best way people can reach out to you and uh, buy a book, uh, The Gig Economy? Yeah, I mean, the best way is to go to Amazon uh, or Barnes & Noble, um, okay. any, any of those book websites. It's called The Gig Economy. And the best way to reach out to me is on my website, which is dianemulcahy.com. And if you want to just kind of keep in touch with what's going on in the gig economy, and get some of my exercises and questions that help people think about how to transition, you can sign up for my monthly newsletter on my website. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, thank you very much for coming on to the show and uh, sharing your thoughts. I really appreciate speaking to you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a conversation. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.